This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I would like to next introduce uh, Margaret Leinen. Uh, she is the Vice Chancellor for Marine Sciences at UC San Diego. She's the Director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Uh, and the Dean of the School of Marine Sciences. Now, hands down, Margaret has the best office on campus. <laughs> Out her back door, actually, which is a sliding glass door onto a deck that's on the sand, is this beautiful view of the ocean, La Jolla Shores, uh, and uh, the working research peer of Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Dr. Leinen joined Scripps Institution of Oceanography in October of, of 2013, so just about two years ago. She uh, is, uh, has an extensive national and international experience in ocean science, global climate and environmental issues, uh, federal research administration, and nonprofit startups. She is a researcher herself in paleooceanography and paleoclimatology. Uh, and it is with great pleasure and deep respect that I bring Margaret forward. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. We're going to change the schedule just slightly uh, because we want to make um, it possible for Mayor Faulkner to be able to uh, attend his next uh, commitment. So I'm going to introduce the mayor. He's going to speak, and then I'll come back. Uh, it's really a pleasure to introduce our, our San Diego mayor to all of you. Uh, he is no stranger to the University of California, San Diego. He's no stranger to Scripps Oceanography, and he is no stranger to this topic. He reflects a new breed of community leader who really understands that science and technology are the keys to the innovation economy, and he routinely uh, connects the two to our economy. Uh, he also understands the importance of green energy and uh, all of the environmental aspects that we'll be talking about over the next couple of days uh, that lead to carbon neutrality. And he uh, understands that these are actually uh, keys to a more vibrant economy and to a vibrant future for our region. He has led many efforts in San Diego, both on the carbon neutrality side, uh, trying to, to mitigate emissions, and also on the side of understanding how uh, these impacts will play out in San Diego and how we can adapt to them. It is a great pleasure to introduce you to him, Mayor Faulkner. Well, thank you, Margaret. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Welcome to San Diego. Terrible day outside. Uh, if we stood out there, if we were out there all day, we'd never get anything done. And so I'm actually probably glad we're indoors now, but what a reminder of why we're here. Don't you think? I mean, what, what a just beautiful, gorgeous 
San Diego day with our ocean rolling in, uh, fresh, clean air. Uh, this is what this is, this is all about. And Margaret, thank you for that uh, great introduction. And, and Sandra and, and everybody at, at UC and Scripps Institute uh, of Oceanography uh, and everybody throughout, uh, throughout the UC system and throughout California. Uh, welcome to San Diego. I'm glad you're here. By the way, I want you to spend lots of money for the next two days, so make sure you get out and do a little. I have to say that as, as mayor, but look, you're, you're all sustainability leaders, uh, and that is something that we are very, very proud of, of the efforts that all of us are doing here in San Diego, with the emphasis on the words collaboration. Uh, and I learned that a long time ago. If you're not working together, uh, we can't achieve what we need to do. But the fact that we have so many of you here from throughout the state and indeed throughout the country, um, we're proud of the efforts that UC is doing. We're very proud of the efforts that Scripps is doing here in San Diego. You have a mayor that supports you. You have a mayor that stands with you. And you have a mayor that understands the work that we're doing here uh, is reverberating indeed across the country and across the world. And so these next two days as we come together, um, I think it's very, very important that we demonstrate our continued leadership. Not only thought leadership, but leadership in putting it into action. And I spend a lot of time on both, um, because you have to translate, obviously, great ideas into what we're doing. You know, when I, when I think about the work, what we've been doing here in San Diego, as you look outside and you, you saw our, our great, precious environment, look, our job is, is to protect that and to turn it over to future generations. I mean, we're all, we're all in these positions for a, for a short amount of time, right? It's, it's what we do uh, while we're here. And that's why I think the work that we're doing is so critical. Um, and people are, are taking notice. I mean, one of the things that uh, just happened a couple of months ago, some of you may have, have seen National Geographic named San Diego as one of the world's smartest cities. Picked the only city that they picked in North America. Um, and they did it even though I was mayor. And so I thought that... <laughs> But, but, they're, but they're recognizing what's going on here in San Diego. They're recognizing that, that, that innovation in our economy and that synergy and everything that's happening. Um, there is great things uh, that is going on. And in fact, we represent, the, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm glad Sandra talked about it, this is about public and private sectors coming together for, for real solutions. That is the future. And you know, one of the things that, that we are bringing forward here in San Diego, because I'm a big believer and you have to act locally. Uh, we're bringing before the city council here our climate action plan uh, in just a couple of months, and it's a plan that has support from environmental leaders, from business leaders, from community leaders that we've worked uh, a very long time on, um, because it's an issue that affects all of our neighborhoods, every part of San Diego, and indeed when we look at what clean tech is doing and others here, um, we're moving forward uh, together. Um, just last week, I introduced uh, a plan, by the way, as we're continuing to do great work here in solar, where we're doing 25 new city buildings. All we're going to have solar in city you know, locations throughout our libraries, our city administration, you know, all. It's what we should be doing. And oh, by the way, we're going to save $20 million over the next 20 years. So um, we're, not, we're putting our money where our mouth is, in our, and we're not stopping there as we look at so many other opportunities that we have. We've identified another 40 sites that we're going to be doing solar, just as one small example. But steps like this are what's very important for us as we're moving towards our goal to have all electricity used in the city of San Diego, all electricity to be from renewable sources by 2035. 
That is something that we know is achievable. That is something that we know is the right thing to do for our cities, the right thing to do for our state, um, and it's the right thing to do for our region. So uh, with your help, and I mean it, with, with your help, we are committed to be continuing to be a leader in innovation and sustainability here in San Diego. And I'll tell you, we are delighted to partner with UCSD, with Scripps Institute of Oceanography, as we support your efforts, as we learn from your efforts, and take these best practices across the country uh, and across the world. Look, it's about a, a cleaner, brighter San Diego. It's about a cleaner, brighter state of California, uh, United States, and, and the globe. And so, again, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to San Diego. I'm, I'm proud you're here. I'm very proud of the efforts that, uh, that you're doing. Uh, you're on the cutting edge for all of the right reasons. So enjoy your time here in San Diego. And uh, as I said, let's keep it up. The, the, the city, the state, the nation is behind our efforts. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Have a good time, San Diego. So now uh, I'll welcome you to University of California, San Diego, and this wonderful venue at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. It's, uh, uh, I think, very fitting uh, that this carbon neutrality um, meeting is here at Scripps, which has played such a large part uh, in the history and the development of our understanding of climate and of anthropogenic impacts on climate. Uh, there have been uh, so many environmental firsts here in California, and I think that uh, this idea of the UC system being the leader for the state in achieving car uh, carbon neutrality for the system in such a short time uh, and so aggressively is so important and so fitting to that leadership tradition of the UC system. Uh, we could argue about when the modern era of climate began, uh, but for me, I think that it began in the 50s right here at Scripps. But at that time, uh, most people were aware that we were putting CO2 into the atmosphere, but the assumption was that the ocean was capable of taking up all of that CO2. And it wasn't until one of my predecessors, Roger Revelle, uh, director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography, joined with Epstein to publish a paper that very dramatically showed that the ocean would not take up all of the CO2, uh, that it would take up about a quarter of it, but that the rest was going to be a lingering problem. He called attention to that in the scientific community and then used his uh, formidable history as the first technical director of the Office of Naval Research to bring that to a national level of understanding. And he uh, really led an effort amongst so scientists and policymakers uh, to... to um, uh, to capture people's attention about it. He served as the founding chairman of the first Committee on Climate Change in the Ocean uh, during the International Geophysical Year in 1957. And it was about that time that he recruited uh, a bright young scientist from another California institution, but not a UC institution, and that was, of course, Charles David Keeling, uh, who came to us from Caltech. 
And what he was, what Roger was interested in was having somebody that could really document the, the CO2 story and to document what was happening to the atmosphere. And uh, Dave was uh, an amazing analyst, and he was a, a um, stickler for both precision and accuracy. And of course, his interest and his measurements started what has become known as the Keeling Curve, uh, that iconic uh, image of our impact on the, on the uh, atmosphere and its impact on climate. And about uh, 100 yards from here, uh, there is a building uh, just down this, uh, this little street uh, named Ritter Hall, and on it you'll find a plaque uh, where this past year uh, the American Chemical Society named the Keeling Curve a National Historical Chemical Landmark. And uh, it's uh, uh, amazing from a chemistry point of view, but also so important to all of us and to this uh, very important enterprise that we're engaged in. Dave set up stations around the world. Uh, there's one right out on Scripps Pier. Uh, but the most famous, of course, is still uh, the one at the top of Mauna Loa. And it's that record of measurements uh, that we now know as the Keeling Curve. Uh, Ramanathan, who, uh, will be, uh, who has led this effort uh, to have this meeting on behalf of the, the faculty of the UC system, uh, is also an important player in this. Uh, when he isn't out influencing global leaders to, uh, to address climate change, like uh, Pope Francis, uh, he is an atmospheric chemist uh, who made his career in helping us understand the role of... of um, uh, elements in the, the atmosphere, and most importantly, called our attention to the role of that other carbon, the black carbon, in the atmosphere and its potent role in climate change. Uh, uh, and that sort of innovation from uh, Scripps and from UC goes on. Uh, most recently, uh, our uh, development of uh, a free-floating autonomous uh, float for the ocean uh, that can record uh, the physical parameters of the ocean for the up, uh, entire upper uh, 6,500 feet of the ocean, the Argo network, uh, is another example. And most recently, uh, that has allowed scientists to be able to look at the heat content of the ocean and how this radiative force, forcing and warming of the atmosphere has also impacted the ocean. Across uh, UC San Diego, interest in policy, interest in new energy te technologies, interest in the impacts of climate change, and most importantly, impact in uh, interest in how we can adapt to that uh, has led us to develop uh, a university-wide initiative on climate change impacts and adaptation uh, that is now, uh, has now been um, endowed as a new center for the university, and we're currently um, uh, searching for eight new interdisciplinary faculty members to join the rest of the UC San Diego faculty in this important enterprise. 
this kind of observation, this kind of interdisciplinary uh, study, this kind of attention to not, not only the cause of changes, but their impacts and their solutions uh, is a hallmark of UC San Diego. It's a hallmark of the UC system. And I think that uh, this continuum of innovation from the, be- from the first uh, detection and attribution to impacts, adaptation, and also mitigation is really what we're talking about. And it's so much a part of the UC system. It's so much a part of UC San Diego and so much a part of Scripps that it's very fitting uh, that, that people have come from all over to pay attention to UC as a leader, uh, a leader in really saying that this is something we can do. Uh, This is something we are doing, uh, and this is something that will attract the interest uh, of the entire world. I'm so proud to join all of the rest of you in being a part of this effort, being a part of the leadership of the UC system. Thank you so much. Thank you, Margaret, for that very inspiring remarks, set of remarks, and uh, especially for the history. I was really pleased to hear you comment on the important history that Scripps has played in this area, this field of science, and uh, wonderful to hear that. Next, I'd like to call on um, uh, Rachel Nava, who is the Chief Operating Officer and Senior Vice President of the University of California, and also co-chair, along with Wendell Brase, of the uh, Global Climate Leadership Council, which is the UC-wide entity that is charged with uh, guiding this. Rachel has provided just wonderful leadership in this area, and we look forward to hearing your remarks. Rachel? Good morning, everyone. I am so pleased to be here. And um, I first off want to thank you all for joining us and traveling from all over the state and elsewhere to to be a part of this. I want to thank Chancellor Kosla and uh, Vice Chancellor Sandy Brown for hosting the summit today. And um, I mostly want to express my sincere thanks and appreciation to Professor Ramanathan, who has been the uh, chair of the summit and has pulled together um, a monumentous effort of faculty and staff here at the university to um, explore what we can do all collectively um, to help uh, address the issues of climate change. So I've been asked to, to just briefly give you a little bit of an overview about the university's carbon neutrality initiative. As you heard from others, uh, the, the president, when she joined the university in September of 2013, one of the very first things, in fact, probably the very first thing she did at her, region, her first regents meeting in November was launch this very important carbon neutrality initiative. And um, she set forward for us a very ambitious and daunting goal, which was that we, as a university system, need to be carbon neutral by 2025. And as the person who has functional responsibility for this goal, I'll tell you, I, it keeps me up at night, um, because it is an ambitious thing to do. And as you know, we have 10 campuses, uh, five medical centers, three national labs. We are running uh, large 
cities and each of our communities uh, that have intensive energy needs. And uh, for us to figure out how to be carbon neutral is uh, no small feat and will require um, an amazing um, uh, nexus of research, uh, uh, climate-friendly uh, business practices, um, and I think ultimately uh, brave leadership to do what we need to do. Um, you'll hear from President Napolitano tomorrow morning, and uh, she will talk to you about uh, why she brought this together and really um, the, the need for us to pull together our pioneering climate research and um, our longstanding commitment to helping new, move the needle around uh, uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and I will say that this is more than... Um, just about sustainability. It's more about more than just having efficient green buildings, which I will talk about. Um, it's not just about sustainable transportation and zero net waste reduction or sustainable food. It's really about a, a movement of um, diverse strategies and practices in order for us to get where we need to go. So, um, in order, as you heard uh, Dave Austin mention, uh, the president pulled together a Global Climate Leadership Council, which uh, is um, meant to inform and advise her about how we can get to this uh, goal of carbon neutrality. And I'm, I'm fortunate to get a, ch a chance to co-chair with uh, Vice Chancellor at uh, Irvine, Wendell Brazi, who will be here later this afternoon, who has been an amazing advocate uh, for all this work across the university system and has certainly in my short tenure here of eight months with the university been an incredible teacher uh, and um, support in helping us figure out how, what we need to do. So you can see that um, the president took a very wide view of uh, how we might get here and she brought together experts from all different parts of the university uh, including faculty, staff, students, um, provosts, uh, researchers, and external advisors. And we are meeting regularly to look at a variety of different strategies around engagement, action, um, to help achieve uh, and accelerate our progress towards our goals. So what are we doing and uh, what are our strategies? Well, this is a very... Uh, pared down version of the many things that we're looking at. But the foundation of our strategy really primarily is to reduce our energy consumption across all of our campuses. Um, and we are doing that through a variety of means around energy efficiency, um, looking at how we produce renewable energy um, on our campuses and how we generate that off campus as well. And we have made tremendous progress on both those fronts. Um, and I'll show you some data um, shortly. However, I do want to say that this is not an easy thing to do. It's more than just having green buildings. It's more than just putting solar on every single parking lot and rooftop we have on our campuses. Um, we have energy-intensive laboratories and hospitals, which require um, our ability to deliver uh, 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 carbon-free uh, electricity to them. And... Uh, it requires a, I think, aggressive approach to how we are mitigate our natural gas usage, which is a major source of our carbon footprint in our university system. So uh, this just shows you uh, how much money we've saved as a result of our uh, efforts so far around energy efficiency. 
So as I said, our first priority is to reduce electricity consumption. It not only saves money for us, but also reduces our greenhouse gas emissions and other environmental impacts. Uh, we formed an award-winning uh, statewide energy partnership with our four investor-owned utilities back in 2004, and as a result of that partnership and many of the investments we've made around energy efficiency, we've saved a total of $160 million in utility costs, which we can then redirect to our core academic mission. So that's about $28 million annually. So uh, how are we doing this? One of our strategies, obviously, is to focus on carbon-free electricity. And uh, we had set our goal for ourselves of um, generating 10 megawatts of solar by 2014 on-site on our campuses. And you can see that we've more than tripled that goal already. Uh, we also... Uh, became a uh, electricity service provider. So we're, we're now procuring wholesale power for our campuses that have direct access. And in building that expertise within the university, it had afforded us the opportunity to go out and buy 80 megawatts of solar uh, at a farm in uh, the Central Valley. And that's the largest solar power purchase of any university in the country. By 2017, about 60% of our imported electricity uh, for our campuses that have direct access will come from solar power. Uh, we are well on our way to carbon-free electricity, but there do remain some regulatory challenges for us for those campuses that aren't direct, ac direct access, which we need to continue to work towards. On the natural gas front, I will say this is the most challenging part for the university, and this is the thing that's going to either make or break our ability to achieve our carbon neutrality goal. Uh, we are looking at a variety of strategies to address this, and I hope today's conference uh, will help um, um, drive us towards that, um, that intense and scary goal. I'll tell you. Okay, so let's talk about green buildings, because I think it's important to highlight this. Um, over... Uh, the course of several years, we've made a commitment to having LEED-certified uh, buildings. As our campuses and medical centers grow, it's important that we make sure our, our facilities are energy efficient. We have over 200 LEED certifications uh, for our buildings, which is more than any university uh, in the country. We've also been recognized for our work um, around uh, having uh, energy efficient schools. Uh, CR Magazine recently ranked uh, campuses across the nation, and many of you know UC Irvine was ranked for the second year in a row as the coolest school in the nation. <laughs> Definitely worthy of applause. We had five UC campuses ranked in the top 20, seven in the top 50. We were also recently uh, recognized by the Princeton Review Green College Honor Roll, where UC Berkeley and UC Irvine were uh, recognized. So uh, this is no small feat, and we continue to be at the top of the list, uh, not in small part to all the work that you all are doing on your campuses every day. When I'm out talking to groups about uh, UC's carbon neutrality initiative, I also often get questions, well, how do I get involved? What is it? What does it mean? Uh, what can we do? So as one of our uh, projects that President Napolitano funded, uh, we decided to embark on an engagement campaign uh, to get our students, staff, and faculty, uh, one, aware of the carbon neutrality initiative, 
two, to get an opportunity for them to understand how their uh, practices and behaviors are impacting their carbon footprints, and three, to get them engaged in actually to making behavioral changes. So we've launched the Cool Campus Challenge, which is happening right now. It's an online competition, because we all love a good competition, uh, for campuses to compete against each other, to uh, make pledges about their uh, workplace habits, their school habits, their personal habits, and make changes take public transportation, uh, change out their lighting to LED-efficient lighting bulbs, um, uh, make differences in terms of their food choices. And uh, this is a really exciting opportunity for all of us to work together. Um, if you haven't uh, been to the website, I encourage you to do uh, take a look at it. It's uh, thecoolcampuschallenge.org. In the first two weeks we launched the challenge, we had over 10,000 participants, which is great. Uh, we're getting a lot of positive feedback. Uh, there's a nice social media as uh, aspect to this, so hashtag you cool. If you, if you go onto Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you can see all sorts of fun pictures. Um, and I will say, I checked last night, UC Irvine was in first place in terms of total points. UC Davis was a close second, and UCLA is in third. There's lots of time, everybody, so go out and make your pledges. And uh, this is a familiar place. This is uh, Chancellor Dirks from UC Berkeley, and he wants you to take the Cool Campus Challenge. He's looking pretty cool there, I think. Okay, lastly, um, I just want to leave you all with the importance of what we're trying to achieve and actually where we are in our progress in trying to lower our greenhouse gas emissions. And um, you can see uh, the very top red bar is our 2014 policy goal. We have surpassed that. We are working now towards our 2020 policy goal. And down there at the bottom, 10 years from now, is where we need to be in terms of our carbon neutrality goal. We have a ways to go. And um, I want to enlist all of you to um, help us figure out how we get to this important uh, goal, not only just for the university, but for, as we're going to hear over the course of the next two days, how do we support uh, municipalities, the state, the nation, our global partners to um, leverage the research, the technologies, the business practices that we are utilizing here in the university, and how do we accelerate those and share those and spread them throughout the world. And if anybody can do it, it's the University of California. I have no question about that. And I'm certainly excited to be working with all of you and to learn as much as we can over the next two days about how we can get to that bottom orange dot there on the graph. And I will just say personally as a... Um, as a mom of two young children, I don't think there's any more important work uh, than the work that we're doing here today to help um, uh, deal with this very critical global crisis. So I'm honored to get a chance to partner with all of you to do this work, and I thank you very much for your interest and um, engagement in it. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel, and thank you for your leadership. Uh, I have to say that, and I'm glad that Rachel um, expressed a certain uh, uh, waking hour, the number of waking hours at night, uh, concerned about this, because I have to say that, and I've told President Napolitano this, actually, that when I first heard about the initiative, I said, oh, wow, give me a break. Um, <laughs> this is over the top. Um, but the reality is I and many of my colleagues, especially among the faculty who were initially skeptical now, have really come around 180 degrees. And it's very evident in this uh, 
gathering here today. And as Rachel mentioned, what's happening is that we are, perhaps for the first time in a very long while, functioning as a single university. Um, we compete wonderfully, and I think it's very healthy competition among the campuses. But um, it's really wonderful to see people coming forward. And uh, you'll hear from the talks later this afternoon um, uh, a lot of evidence of this. Uh, and to give you a, an historical perspective on this issue, we also have the great pleasure today to hear from someone who I think really deserves the, the mention as a living legend. Um, he, uh, Walter Monk, is uh, not only an esteemed uh, oceanographer, um, the surfers, by the way, just think he is God because he actually made it possible for them to determine when the surf is going to be high and when it's not. And Walter is going to um, give us a few remarks, especially about the historical perspective of, of this issue. Not surfing, but about uh, climate. <laughs> Dr. Monk. Thank you. I came to Skeps the first time in summer 39 when I was a graduate student at Caltech. I was dating a girl from Skeps College whose grandparents lived in La Jolla and I needed a job here so, so I could see her during the summer. <laughs> Harald Sverdrup, a famous North Pole explorer, was director Roger Rebell had just received his PhD. The total number of people here, personnel, including the gardener, was 15. <laughs> it's changed by two orders of magnitude since Margaret came. And uh, Roger was aware even then of the uh, climate problem and by some well-known perturbations of the Earth orbit, it was predicted that we would enter another ice age in 20,000 years. And we're still going to enter another ice age in 20,000 years. And the joke was going around, wasn't it clever of us, clever of population, to emit some carbon into the atmosphere <laughs> to keep us from entering another ice age. The only problem is we've overshot. <laughs> this is not the first time that the different campuses of the University of California have worked together to do an absolutely essential job. In 1940, Oh, I'm sorry. In 1941, President Sproul uh, formed the University of California Division of War Research, UCDWR, with three campuses participating, the only three available at the time, Berkeley, UCLA, and Davis. And we here in San Diego, participated in a very important way. I 
My homeland is Austria, and my stepfather was part of the Austrian government, the Schuschnigg government, which had been deposed by Hitler by the time. I was very much disturbed by that. And so I joined the ski troops at Fort Lewis, Washington, to participate in what I thought would be the oncoming conflict. It turned out that I'd served for about a year and a half by 41, and there had been no participation in the European scene. Germany had overrun most of Europe, and uh, the German submarines were sinking Allied shipping that was bringing very much needed supplies to Europe. And this particular UCDWR was formed to do something about this very, very difficult problem. And I want to remind you that our, at the time, our ideas as to what to do about it were very, very much mixed, not at all clear. And some people even thought it was impossible to do anything about it. But I remember those and, and, and so Roger Rebell asked for me to be discharged. I'd done some work in oceanography. And after 18 months of service, I came to join the UCDWR effort here in San Diego. We would meet daily at Point Loma at the US Navy Radio and Sound Laboratory and work on the problems of anti-submarine warfare. Uh, Harold Sverdrup was in formal charge of a small Scripps group, and Roger Revell, Lieutenant J.G. Revell, was a member who'd asked me to join that group. And we worked very hard. I think back of that period with great pleasure. We all worked together. There was no question that the job needed to be done. We had a joint effort and worked together. And the incredible thing is, this was 1941, that three and a half years later, we landed in Normandy. Just remember that. This, we, ten, year, 20, 10 years seems a very short time. At that time when UCDWR was formed, we had no idea what we were going to do, and we changed from being in a very, very difficult decision to landing in Normandy in three and a half years. I'm still amazed how quickly things changed. So I really want to just welcome this group. I'm so happy to be a member of it. I'm inspired by the goals, and I hope we can all work effectively together to do something about it. It's a job about as difficult or maybe more difficult than the one we faced in beginning in 1941. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Monk, for those very inspiring comments. You've really moved us all and given us a terrific uh, incentive to uh,
push hard and make this goal a success. Thank you for your wonderful leadership. It's now my great pleasure uh, to call on Helena Morlin Valdez, who is the head of the Secretariat of the Climate and Clean Air Coalition of the United Nations Environmental Program. We're very pleased and honored to have Helena with us today. Thank you, California. I just arrived last night from Paris, Paris, France, that is. Uh, and I'm sorry to say that I was contributing to some of the CO2 emissions out there in the atmosphere. So we have to work on, on teletransportation or something. Tomorrow my boss will speak to you as well, Achim Steiner, from Nairobi, and he will not use an airplane but Skype. So that is one way of doing it, I guess. I'm very, very pleased to be here. Thank you to Professor Ramanathan, who is a very distinguished member of our scientific advisory panel in the Climate and Clean Air Coalition. Um, we are really inspired. I've heard the word inspiration a lot, but we also use that. We are very inspired by the spirit of what you have been talking about here in the University of California, but also in California as a whole, this go-get uh, doing spirit it's something that uh, our coalition has been inspired from, not only from the university, but also from policies, politics, uh, bold uh, decisions on climate change on one hand, but long-term air pollution, clean air, which is of course linked to climate change as well, but not necessarily. Um, we have been impressed by the political boldness, as I said, but also by institutions such as the consistent work of the California Air Resources Board. I don't know if anybody's here from, from that board, but I think that's something to celebrate as well. And of course, to celebrate what you are doing here, you talked about uh, going out in the world. I think that um, starting small, as mayor, the mayor said before, starting locally in these issues is essential. And then to scale it up at the, at the nation, national level, but most importantly, this is a global challenge. Climate change is a global challenge, and that's why we have to work together. Um, another thing, I'm personally, I, I'm an architect. How many architects do we have here in the room? Three more, welcome. So we, we are trained, we are trained to build to build environment, to build city, urban space, uh, but to build for the future as well. And I think some of our profession forget that sometimes, how everything is interconnected. You and we together can do so many things because dealing with climate change challenges and clean air, which is essential for our survival, is about interdisciplinary work. Some, it was already mentioned here. But it's also everybody's business. And I think that's the, really the nuts and bolts of, of, of this exercise of the summit as well. And I wanted to just uh, tell the story about the Climate and Clean Air Coalition to reduce short-lived climate pollutants, to make a point as well as of the importance of the work that researchers and the science actually is doing. You might not realize it, all of you, and... Mario Molina, Professor Mario Molina, Professor Ramanathan here in the room today, but also many others around the globe has contributed not only to the, the climate change challenge, but this combined effort of putting things together in a context. So in the beginning there was science. This is now for the 
for the birth of the Climate and Clean Air Coalition. Uh, an integrated assessment looking at black carbon and tropospheric ozone, to which methane is one of the important precursors, in the context of climate forcing, contributing to climate change, and to air pollution. And the lifelong work of, of Professor Ramanathan and others uh, are the ones that helped take this forward. And I'm not going to talk to you about the science because you are much, many of you are much more able to do that than myself. But I will tell you one thing, that this kind of reports and this kind of evidence very well transmitted and presented does change policies and just help to change policies. So I think somebody mentioned, that, I think you mentioned that you have a, a work stream on, on messaging and, and behavior. I think this is really critical for, for these changes of world. This is one of the early, uh, the, an early version of this curve that to help bending the curve, which will be the topic for the rest of this summit, did move a lot of people. It's not only to work on greenhouse gases, long-term greenhouse gases and CO2 that will make a difference. Business as usual, business as usual we know is a problem and, and, and there is scientific evidence for this. But to really start to look at the impact on black, of black carbon methane and to avoid the increase of hydrofluorocarbons as well, HFCs, could actually, by demonstrating that this would indeed in the next 30 year contribute 0.6% 0 0.6 degrees Celsius degrees to this 2 degree path it's quite impressive and the report at the time was looking at 16 very distinct measures technology solutions um, that would um, if implemented fully by 2030 actually yield these results of 0.6% uh, 0.6 degrees Celsius sorry and the fact that we were talked about pollutants, particulate matters, or, or, or even tropospheric ozone, we talk about days, weeks, and, or a decade when it's living in the atmosphere. We are not talking about hundreds of years, thousands of years, which is, of course, the huge problem with CO2. So by working on, on a dual policy, not either or, it's really both. We need this very strong, and I think you, can, you are, or if you are not, definitely you should look, look into some of these measures as well as part of your carbon neutral, neutrality initiative. Quick, quick impact, quick results with multiple benefits. The World Health Organization has uh, developed a, a new version of its global burden of disease, and as a matter of fact, air pollution, both indoor and outdoor air pollution, is now one of the biggest health threats of the world. Seven million people annually uh, has, dies from premature deaths due to air pollution, and a very big amount of this percentage comes from particular matter, including black carbon. Cardiac arrests, 80%, and the rest through re respiratory or other, other diseases. Today, just today, the, the WHO released new data on car um, cancerogenic, impact of eating red meat and uh, processed meat. If you haven't seen it, it's out today. And that's also new and impressive figures to take into consideration. 30% or a third almost of the methane emission, as you know, comes from uh, livestock, enteric fermentation and manure. So that's another way of looking at it. So by these very impressive and very clear messages on what it would take to 
do certain things in certain sectors by certain times, moved a lot of very powerful uh, decision makers. Six countries, six ministers, uh, and the United Nations Environment Programme launched in 2012 the Climate and Clean Air Coalition to reduce short-lived climate pollutants uh, to address specifically this challenge. And starting off with a five-year perspective, they have now expanded this to another five years. Uh, and out of the six initial countries, this was launched in Washington by Secretary um, Clinton at the time, with uh, Canada, Mexico, Sweden, Bangladesh, Ghana. Um, uh, I missed one. No, these are the six, correct. And now it's a real south-north initiative with 50 countries um, from all the continents and going towards many more countries which commit by joining this coalition to take meaningful action to address and reduce these three short-lived climate pollutants, black carbon, methane, and hydrofluorocarbons. And, and it's a number of the biggest intergovernmental organizations involved as well, UNEP, UNDP, Development Program, UNIDO, Industrial Development, many of the development banks, the vice president of the World Bank, uh, of the European Investment Bank, of the Nordic Bank, and many others. So it's kind of a powerhouse, really. And the reason why I mentioned this in this context, and, and I guess was invited to come here as well, is to, to put in perspective what you are doing. Because this is a, there are many opportunities of this kind of groups that are looking for the evidence and that can scale it up. Because that's really the the power of, of this movement that was referred to before. So the coalition is talk as a political leadership, action-oriented, and with many partners on the ground, really building the, the work on the fact that there is um, scientific evidence that underpins this kind of thing. I'm just going to mention a few uh, specific things that we are doing, starting with city action, because uh, the coalition's purpose, the objective of the coalition is to uh, prioritize actions that will help develop or implement policies, regulations, and practices that will change and reduce short-lived climate pollutants in a short or medium term. And this is being done a lot through peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, but also through very specific intervention and technology demonstrations. And on, on the city side, we are working on municipal solid waste, for example. San Diego and San Francisco are both mentor cities to others in this uh, area. And, and your mayor just outlined very clearly to me why. I, I wasn't aware of the big picture, but that was very useful for me to hear as well. Uh, so uh, San Diego was in Cali, city of uh, Cali in Colombia, just earlier this year, uh, developing together um, uh, a strategy and a plan, action plan for the city, including with a, a mechanical biological treatment facility as one of the objectives to establish in, in Cali. We have now 50 cities working together in this endeavor, and there is a commitment aiming towards engagement of 1,000 cities by 2020. We are also working on technology demonstrations, taking some of the, the specific um, solutions that be, was outlined to a laboratory of actually testing them. So we are working with the oil and gas industry, for example, in a methane partnership with uh, companies signing up to uh, individually survey nine core sources of methane leakage and, and to report on the, on the results, which is a very big step for, 
for the companies to actually do that. And we are also working on uh, with two technology demonstrations on how to recover hydro hydrocarbon liquids before they become flared to avoid the flaring and the black carbon that results from this. One in Colombia, one in in in. Uh, in Mexico, and this is to actually measure the real results, because a lot is, uh, it's very, as you know, and this is why we also need to work more with you and with the, with the researchers, there, we need more research, we need more data, we no, need better metrics to actually be able to feed all this back into real investment plans and, and, and benefits. We're also working on technology demonstrations uh, in the cold, uh, commercial cold chain, in a supermarket chain in Chile in the cold climate and in Jordan in hot climate. And we're just going to start in India to work with a, a, a mobile um, air conditioning systems to test alternatives to HFC. And this is, of course, a big issue. And, and the United States ha has also really put the, a lot of effort behind this kind of efforts, which is very helpful. And cities and local action is essential. Uh, individual action and behavior is essential, but in the end, what drives a lot of investment is actually political and policies from a national scale. So what we are trying to do as well as a coalition with our 50, 49 country partners and influencing others as we go along is to really start systematic inventories and scenario building on how short-lived climate pollutants such as black carbon, methane, hydrofluorocarbons, and many of the other gases do impact on their economy, impact on health, on agriculture and crop yields, and at the same time to see the volume of this, uh, where they come from, the sources, the core sources, where they come from, the power plants, the, the waste management, the brick kiln, uh, uh, traditional brick kilns, cook stoves, heat stoves, etc., burning of biomass. And we have developed a toolkit to do so, with the help of the US uh, EPA and also the Stockholm Environment Institute. And it's being rolled out now in six countries for the time being and moving towards another uh, uh, eight countries. Again, data and evidence and is what will build also these national uh, policies. And the scaling up of, of private sector engagement, which was mentioned before, is really another very important ingredient in making it happen. And then again, to build the business cases, uh, return on investment, and at the same time build a reputation of being environmentally responsible, it's something that can only be done in a kind of a global, uh, global community where, where this is shared. So way forward, well, Paris, many of you, of course, knows that the 21st conference of the parties of the United Nations uh, Climate Change Convention meets the first two weeks uh, this year in Paris. They meet every year in December, and during the rest of the year, a lot of negotiation is taking place to create a, 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 an aggressive and, and, and useful agreement across all these 115, um, sorry, 215 countries that participate in this. And this year, um, there is also, uh, in addition to the agreement among countries that is still being teased out, and the question is if it will be a binding agreement, or how, how, how ambitious will it be? And tomorrow, Ma, uh, Achim Steiner will speak a little bit more about this. There is also something referred to as the Lima Paris Action Agenda, which is additional action by private sector, NGO, non-governmental organizations, cities and subnational entities, such as California, and the governor Brown is very much involved in this as well. How much additional action 
can be made. And my time is now out, so I would just say a few more words. So what we are doing for, for the first time, and thanks to efforts such as yours and with the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, we have now gotten the short-lived climate pollutants, looking at both the clean air aspect and the emission of these short-lived pollutants, part of the agenda. And this is part of the Lima Paris Action Agenda. And some of the bigger commitments is about HFC phase-down and alternatives. It's about green, I'm not going to speak about it, but we can talk about it offline because it's also about energy efficiency and, and freezing less in these rooms. I really, I always have a difficulty going to hot places because you're very warm outside and then you're freezing to death. I'm freezing right now inside. So that's part of the HFC equation, I guess. Uh, green freight, again, how do we move goods from one place to another without uh, polluting too much and how, what's the commitment by the companies? <coughs> And then again, this oil and gas methane partnership. We have seven companies right now uh, serving and reporting on their missions, and we are looking for many more. And the, the force of the, of the many is what we hope will, will lead us to this. And finally, to get more cities engaged in the, in the city, city municipal solid waste initiative. And as you were mentioning for even organizing this forum, there is a... a the need of, of collaborative action. And for that purpose, the private sector engagement in the coalition and beyond now is, is growing. And it's the visibility of the efforts that also, as well as the policy push to actually do something that will make this happen. Um, these are just a few of the companies that we are working with. But finally, it's really with you. And I, that was my key message now today. So all of this is really based on what we know and what we can demonstrate. And the only way of being forceful and, 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 and really make a change in the long run is to be able to build it up through evidence, through research, through interdisciplinary uh, activities. So it's an invitation also for you to participate more and share through this kind of coalition to make your efforts uh, globally known putting shortly climate pollutants on the academic agenda, more literature, that's what we need. And IPCC will have something to look at next time for the next six assessment reports uh, that might actually change some of these results. So thanks a lot, and we let's bend the curve together. Thanks. Thank you, Helena, for that. Uh international and global perspective uh, and, uh, and also um, wonderful summary of the leadership provided by yourself and the uh, environmental program of the United Nations. Next we turn to uh, someone who probably more than anyone else has uh, provided the leadership and driving energy for this meeting. and. Uh, and Ram has certainly driven us, I have to say. <laughs> Those of us who've been involved in this uh, know normally a conference of this type, of this size and magnitude, uh, requires six to nine months. Um, uh, this came together in just about three months, which is remarkable. And it's also a testament both to Ram's leadership and also to the importance of this topic and the wonderful enthusiasm and participation of the many campuses and the three affiliated national labs. So, Ram, and uh, I have to say also personally, I've just been a real pleasure working with you as a colleague. You've uh, tested me as well as our colleagues, and I've learned immensely a lot from you. And now we're going to hear from Ram, who will tell us about 
not just uh, his vision for this summit, but also especially about the report that has been developed in parallel with this summit, which is no sim 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 simple undertaking in itself. Ron? Thank you, Dave. I think Dave delivered that with some pain, and we all experienced that pain. Uh, so if I can start, uh, it was about four months ago when uh, Margaret Linen and Sandy Brown recruited me to do this. So what was my starting point? <clears throat> Clean blank slate. And I honestly uh, did not know, to my embarrassment, about this carbon neutrality initiative within this campus. And uh, so how did we get started? We quickly formed this so-called UC50. I, I think of it as a gang of 50, drawn from uh, amazingly all 10 campuses and uh, the three DOE labs. I, I must say, I'm just so proud of being part of this UC system. No one turned us down in spite of this hellish timescale. We have to deliver a 300-page report in less than three months. So how did that happen? That's the two events. Uh, so uh, I... I after my name was proposed, I got a personal uh, letter of appointment from our president, Janet Napolitano. And she I knew before, but I said, let me find out what she has done. <laughs> and then I learned about this, this fantastic statement, Call for Action, it was on our website. They're telling us, you, you see, you are generators of knowledge, but take that knowledge into action in the field. And then I saw what various campuses have done, in, uh, uh, including our own campus, UCSD, here. And then I, I've been working uh, with the governor since last fall. And what this state has done, it's just amazing amount of, we started the first greenhouse initiative in 2002, and then Governor Schwarzenegger, the AB32, and then our governor, Jenny Brown, this year up the ante, said we're going to cut it down to 40%, okay? And we are already at 23% renewable for power, and it's going to go to 50%. I said, then you look at the UC system, population of half a million, that's a city state. We heard of San Diego, we have a city, and we have a state. And I saw the job of this gang of 50, is to take that as art of the possible and take the message to the world. So uh, collectively, we came with this idea that this summit, there are two things. The summit brings in the civil society, entrepreneurs, academia, and governance, right? And trash it out. You're going to hear some exciting discussions uh, once I stop speaking. <laughs> And it's just fantastic teamwork. And uh, until Sandy and Margaret uh, drafted me as many faculty, we didn't even know who UCOP is. 
but there are nearly 25 worked every day. Just to tell you uh, one uh, sort of a miracle, we turned in our executive summary only last Friday. They turned in the report four days, and I'll tell you already, accolades are coming. Just to tell you how involved the world is, you know, we heard from Helena. She's leading 50 nations, going to be one of the most busiest person at COP21. We just contacted her two weeks ago, and here she is. Thank you, Helena. So let me talk to you about what is the scientific urgency. How come everyone from the UC campus just signed on? So as of 2010, we had already emitted 2 trillion tons of CO2. And right now, our uh, emission is about 38 gigatons, growing at 2%. At that rate, in less than 15 years, we would have put the third trillion. Okay? And each trillion, taking the best of climate science, we'll hear from some of our speakers, Bill Collins from uh, Berkeley, uh, but we claim ownership to him. He was at UCSD first. <clears throat> Each trillion ton contributes three quarters of a degree. So by 2030, we've already put enough CO to heat the planet by two and a quarter. So that's one. When are we going to see it? There is a delay. So many of us are predicting by 2050, we're going to shoot past two degrees. So please keep track of all our panelists, speakers. There are two time scales. If you don't do anything between now to 2030, drastic, just following the UC example, the San Diego example, the California example, it's too late. But the work doesn't stop. So 2030, we have to bend that curve a little bit. And by 2050, we have to finish the job of decarbonization, if you have any chance. Because every 18 years, we are putting another trillion. Okay? So uh, we'll hear about how we're going to bend that curve. And I think it's one of the few reports which talks about the CO2 problem in the context of air pollution. We heard from Helena beautifully how some of the air pollution can be climate change. And you may think, where is the ozone depletion there? Uh, we have the pioneering publisher of the first paper in 1974, Maria Molina here. We'll hear from him tomorrow morning with Sherry Rowland. But a year after they published their paper of the chemical effects of CFCs, I had shown in 75, each ton of this fluorocarbon has more than 10,000 tons of CO2, huge. So the ozone depletion is intricately connected to climate change. So you've got to deal with all three. And the beauty of bringing the air pollution is that, remember, climate is a common good. When you cut your CO2 here, you're helping someone in Africa cope with climate change or preventing the Antarctic from melting. But air pollution ties you to the local interest. As Helena said, seven million die every year. So we can get local interest bringing in the air pollution to attack a common good problem. So our committee uh, recognized that quickly, we formed, realized, 
we have to increase the bandwidth of the discussions. It's just not one of climate science. It's not a question of technology. We've got to talk about societal transformation, change in behavior, attitude. Remember, we have left behind 140 million Americans who still don't think we have to take on climate change. We can't dismiss them as some names, climate deniers. No, they are our friends, our neighbors. So we have social scientists telling us how to do that. And moving on, and then the last one, we always talk about cutting down the source, but we also have to increase the sink for CO2, the terrestrial sink. And each of them, we had world-renowned authorities, just to wave a book written by one of our leaders of the natural manager, Susanna Heck from UCLA, and, and those of you who write books, if you give it to me just before I give a talk, I'll flash it. <laughs> I just got this book. So there's one way I get three books. So this, this is also one of the things, because we brought social scientists, ethicists, we have even religious scholars from Irvine on literature and religion in this. There's an issue, huge issue of intergenerational equity. Our mayor spoke beautifully about that. 15 million of, I'm sorry, 15% of us are a billion contribute 60% of the pollution. We know that the effect is going to linger for a thousand years, if not more. So as we heard from Rachel, we are leaving behind a planet with uncertain future for our children, our grandchildren, and for generations unborn. So there's an intergenerational equity issue. Then there is an intragenerational. Three billion, we have left them behind with primitive technologies. Their contribution is less than 5%, but we know they're going to suffer the worst consequences of climate change. A four-year drought like what hit California, whether to hit India and Africa, it's going to happen. It'll wipe them out. They're all living on that year's farm output to survive. So we can't forget about the intragenerational equity issue. Anyway, so what's going to happen next two days, the first two days is we are bringing the civil society, industry, academia together to have an open brainstorming session. And then tomorrow we are going to announce this 10 scalable solutions drawn from the example of the UC system, drawn from the example of cities like San Diego, drawn from the example of the state of California. So I've been sending it to various leaders, and we, Dave and I, briefed our governor for two hours. We spent with him two hours to discuss the report. We spent five minutes discussing the report, an hour and 55 in all the topics under the sun. <laughs> but uh, we'll see, he has uh, promised to say something after he reads the report. I also talked to Steiner, but I sent the report to the Vatican. I was completely humbled by the response I received this morning. So they have already agreed to take our message to Paris. 
It's going to be an event. <clears throat> Thank you. And uh, so why, why is this? I think simply because I feel uh, this is, I, I started on this path about at least seven, eight years ago. And I, I see a lot of my colleagues from universities. I see bright young students sitting on the back. I think it's not enough for us just to generate our knowledge and publish it in journals and hope policymakers go pick it up. Having worked on this with practitioners in the field, I have learned that we have so much to contribute of ourselves taking that knowledge and working on solutions. So, folks sitting on the back, this is your future. What you learn in this university system, take it to the field, because we need actions desperately, quickly. Okay? So, uh, in terms of those we are going to discuss this, the challenge is forbidding. It's not an easy challenge. Just look at America. The same thing holds good rest of the planet. In the next 35 years, our population is going to increase by about 40%, 320 to 440 million. Okay? Our GDP will grow from 17 to 40 trillion. Let me stop on that and reflect on it. Those of us, particularly on the corporate side, some, not all of them, claim, oh, cutting this decarbonization is going to ruin the economy, is going to throw the jobs out. California started on this cutting air pollution, particularly black carbon. They cut by 90%. And as we learned, black carbon from this diesel is equal to about 2,000 tons of CO2 each ton. When it did that, our economy grew three times, and California's GDP is the largest in the U.S., and there are more jobs it created. So just our living example, not only for technology, to undermine some of the myths going on about climate mitigation. So we have to follow cut our CO2 emission from six and a half gigatons now to close to one gigaton, okay? While our economy and the population is growing. So our per capita emission has to go from 20 tons to about two tons. And we saw that's the path San Diego is on. And that's the path the UC system is on. So we are a spectacular living example of what needs to be done. It is this message with living laboratories. We see posters all around that we have to take to the rest of the planet. Every time we get an argument, oh, no, no, it's not possible. It's a pie in the sky. This is Kool-Aid, etc., etc. We should say, no, we are doing it. Okay? So, one thing I want to point out it's a lot of the, I hope our speakers will address our mitigation plan assume the sink for carbon is going to remain the same. It's 
it's not assured the oceanic sink we heard about reveals work. It could change. If it changes for the better, good for us. If it changes for the worse, we have to work even harder. Okay? So that's why we have one of the main uh, uh, solutions you will see tomorrow. I think we'll hopefully you'll hear from Susanna addressing the carbon sink issue, terrestrial sink. The U.S. terrestrial sink is about one gigaton. Okay? So, and we know we are experiencing this drought, these fires. That's changing the sink. Okay, our, we are losing our trees. If you're not going to plant them back, we have lost that. So there are a lot of feedbacks already kicking in. So I want to thank you, UCOP. I want to thank UCSD, Sandra and Margaret. I think they, I know why they recruited me. They wanted to educate me on this issue. <laughs> I learned a lot in four months, and our slogan should be, bend that curve. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.